Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us this morning on our inaugural career boost camp, uh, hosted, uh, co-hosted by both UCSD alumni and our, our great colleagues at uh, UCSD Extension. When we um, were conceiving of doing this program as part of our fourth annual alumni weekend, uh, we uh, were thinking about what are, I mean, of course, during these times, um, everyone's minds are, are on the job market, economic indicators, and of course, our own personal and professional aspirations. So we, we were trying to hone down on what are the two primary elements that, through the amazing group of uh, folks that we've lined up to talk with you and meet with you, could really drive a different, the point in a different way around this whole notion of finding your career aspirations. And the first was passion. And, uh, and I think as you hear from our keynote, Mr. Will Mare, he's going he's gonna to challenge you to, and to some extent, abandon, I mean, park all your preconceptions about job search and, and career development as you sit down and begin to um, participate in today's program, because I think we're going to peel it back a little bit and get to the whole notion of passion and starting with what's inside of you and what is it you ultimately wish to do, because um, we spend most of our time at work. Most of our productive time during our life is spent at work. So it should be good. It should be fun. Your passion, your sense of value creation should always be present when you're at work. So um, I had the great pleasure of hearing him during our 50th anniversary. And I think, you know, in my 40s, a couple of years ago, still in my 40s, but, you know, he uh, presented and he had this incredible way of just stretching everyone's minds in the room. So I know that he's going to do that today. And, uh, but just have an open mind that, you know, we call this a boost camp. We didn't call it a boot camp. You're not coming here to get, you know, you will get a lot of specifics and things, but it's, uh, it's going to go a little bit deeper, uh, I hope, for all of you, as it did for many of us that we heard him talk the other day. Um, and then the other, the other thing that really drives a point passion is uh, Warren Buffett often is cited by saying, and I think he can say it because where and who he is in his life, but he says, you should have a job where it makes you want to sing to work every day. When you go to work, you got to feel really good and almost want to sing as you go to work every day. In my job, I think I have one of the best jobs in the world. I get to represent UC San Diego and its alumni community, and, uh, and I love it. It's a privilege. It's an honor. get to do great things like this, meet amazing people. And uh, I always uh, tell my friends, my colleagues, that listen to that simple quote that he says, because... If we go do something we don't like, chances are we don't do it really well. You know, think about that. So find that passion inside you, and I think today you're going to get really exciting <clears throat> and a new sense of imagination on how you do that. The second thing that really was a part of the driving force of us doing this was the notion of a network. You know, you all, everybody talks about a network, build your network, how to refine and define a network. There's tools and things out there. But network itself is just a thing. It's not, it's not, there's a lot more to it than we often think of as in the word network. And so I want to stress that when you're here today, aside from the amazing lineup that we have, that introduce yourselves to new people. 
build and sustain a group of folks that you know you can count on, whether it's just for a little bit of advice or for a lifelong of connection, that they will challenge you, they will inspire you, they will dare you to dream, and they will make introductions for you. Um, how many alumni are in the room today? It's fantastic. Welcome back. And our friends in the community? Should be the rest. Yeah. <laughs> I did graduate from UCSD, so. <laughs> but it is early. Do we have any students with us? Graduating seniors? Hey, welcome. Good. So, you know, the alumni network um, is, and we call it the Triton family. So your Triton family network is one of the most powerful communities that we could have working with us and for us as we build um, our path to prosperity. And personally, I've been in the job market since 1990. I'm a product of three economic depressions. Every single position, starting with the first one to where I am today, has been a result of a fellow alum making an introduction or hiring me. It is powerful. It is an undeniable fact that alumni from every institution, and I know that Prop 209s and other types of regulations would probably uh, get in trouble with that, but alumni hire alumni. The Harvard Network, the Princeton Network, the Stanford Network, the UCSC Network. So leverage the Triton family. Today, if you are here and look around and don't know someone, make sure you leave and know at least five people and sustain it and nurture it and make sure that network is part of what you are and what you do professionally and hopefully personally as you move on. So with that, with those two things, your passion and the sense of network, take that, get excited. Uh, Will Mare is um, he's going to kick things off as our keynote. He, uh, I think his introductions and his background's on there. I'm not going to really say much about him because I want you to be dazzled by him as everyone often is when he uh, stands up and just uh, really gives you such an incredible perspective about what it is that we all aspire to do and to become. So thank you for having us. Thank you for being here at UCSD, and I'll introduce Will Maher. Well, when I accepted this opportunity, I wasn't told I'd have to bedazzle you. So that's, um, that's pretty tough at this time of the morning. So what, here's what we're going to do. Um, first of all, I want you to get your subconscious mind working on something, and I want you to ask yourself, who am I more like? Am I more like Martha Stewart, who's the CEO and founder of Martha Stewart Living? Am I more like Steve Jobs, the founder and CEO of Apple? Am I more like Howard Schultz, the founder and CEO of Starbucks? Or am I more like Richard Branson, the founder and CEO of Virgin? Now, before you say I'm not like any of those people, I want to challenge you to just let your subconscious mind run with that. And at the end of the presentation, I'll show you why that matters. Number two. I want to tell you that the only way to achieve really anything in life, but particularly getting on a career track that you want to sing your way to work, that's a pretty high standard. And for many of us, we'd have to sing silently in our car or hum, because if we actually sang showing up at work, we'd drive everybody away. That's another story. But if you want to do that, there's only one way. It's a universal way of achieving any kind of change in your life. And the first thing is to face the truth. What's the truth about what's going on right now? And it's not only the external truth, but what's the truth that's going on in your mind? What's 
What's the story in your mind? And second, you need a strategy. You need an action plan. If this is the truth, what am I going to do differently? Because if I just wish for something to happen, it's not likely to happen. So what actions might I take? Now the third is where a lot of us break down. And it's how much energy and how much resources are we going to invest in making our actions successful? And then third, are we willing to creatively persist? Now, persistence is not in and of itself a great thing because people who are stubborn are persistent. And if you persist doing the same thing over and over again, you all know where that leads to. So creative persistence is when you run into that brick wall, how can you climb over it, get around it, find a magic door or something to get through it? So creative persistence is knowing when to change your game. So all of this is designed to help you face the truth, develop a strategy, decide to invest your energy and whatever resources you can, and to creatively persist. So that's the journey that we're going on, and I really want this to be useful to you. So I'm going to first start talking about some concepts that are really important, and it's like doing spade work in your brain, because our brain tends to look like a a crusty, uh, dried-out desert of just thinking the same thoughts over and over again. So I'm going to try to do some spade work. And then at the end, I'm going to give you one tool that I, that I hope will help you get on your way. Fair enough? So, oh, a couple of years ago, I, I wrote this book called Save the World and Still Be Home for Dinner because I uh, started something called the American Dream Project and in the process uh, went all over the country speaking and met thousands of people. In fact, 26,000 people participated in a survey and, what, and, and trying to boil down what they really wanted in life, not just in their work, was a feeling of meaningful work. That's the save the world part. Feeling like we're making a difference, but at the same time really enjoying life. So I want to be home for dinner too. So this is the story of 30 people that you've never heard of that are living very extraordinary lives by following exactly what I'm going to show you about. This is their formula. So that's the journey we're on. Now, I just finished a course for UCSD Extension. It was just three nights, and it's called Turn Your Superpower into Your Career. And it's really the only way to look at it, your career is that we, we've just, there's a big popular movie called The Avengers Out. We're all familiar with superheroes. But just remember, all superheroes just have one thing they're really good at. So Thor is really good with a hammer, right? Iron Man is nothing without his magic suit. And what I'm suggesting here is that we don't have to be great at everything. But gosh, you don't want to waste a life not being great at something. And that something is already inside you. It's something you actually really want to do that you're really good at and you really enjoy doing. And what we did over this three-night class is help people. We we held it one night and then skipped two weeks because I gave them a bunch of homework and then another two weeks and so on and so forth. And what we tried to do is help people discover what it really was their thing that they were willing to invest in to become extraordinary in that would make them great. I'm going to teach it again in the fall, and you can find out about it through extension if you're interested. About 50 years ago, social scientists started really looking to see if there really was a secret of life. And by a secret of life, is there something in common with people who live long and are really happy living long People who have great relationships, happy marriages, really enjoy their work, really feel their work is satisfying. 
are healthier than most of the rest of us and really feel a sense of contentment and life satisfaction during their life? Is there anything that these people have in common? And there is. And what you'll find is it's quite obvious what they have in common is that they overinvest in something called their future self. And so the whole idea is not so much to look at your life today, this morning, but look at your life three years from now, five years from now, ten years from now. And if you can gain a vision, a self-vision, of your best possible life, what we find is that people who do that consistently make decisions that get them closer to it. Now, this is what we find. People are really rigid with a life plan, like I only want to work here and I only want to do this and I only want to have this salary. Those people are frustrated all the time. So a vision is different than a plan. This isn't having some sort of uh, project management come into your life. It's much more knowing who you are and knowing what you want and holding that as a compass about the opportunities that you take, the people you meet, how you interact with them, and so on and so forth. What the research says is people who do that very often have their vision realized, much more often than just by living randomly. So over-investing, we're going to talk about how you over-invest. This is um, a kind of map of, of how we are today. And it's a cup, and in this cup it has our capacity. I mean, what could we really do? And you'll see at the bottom of the cup is just the layer of our current performance. Now, we know this is true because we find all the time very ordinary people doing very extraordinary things. And Carol Dreck has done all this research at, at Stanford showing that basically we, we develop two mindsets, usually during growing up and the way we were educated. And the first mindset is the fixed mindset. And the fixed mindset is, well, I'm only good at what I'm good at, and I can only learn what I've already learned. And, you know, maybe I, I'm good at this, but I'm not good at this. The growth mindset is, I could probably learn anything if I really tried, if I really made an effort at it. And what she found is the growth mindset is true. Actually, what the research says is that if you have 115 IQ and you really wanted to be a neurosurgeon, you could become one. 115 IQ. If you found your way from the parking structure to this building, <laughs> believe me, you have 115 IQ. Therefore, I want to announce to all of you that you have unlimited potential. It all depends on the energy that you put into developing the tension. Here's just a quick story. I have a daughter who graduated uh, from Arizona State University. That's another story in uh, art history. And art history is a beautiful degree for personal development. When she got out of college, I said, well, honey, where are you going to go for work? And she said, Dad, there's like 10 jobs in this country that actually pays a living wage to art history majors. So I could, I could spend another eight years in college getting a PhD and then try to find a, a teaching job, but there probably won't be any. So what do you want to do? She thought and thought about it, and she became in touch with her superpower. And the way that she became in touch with her superpower is she observed what she would do for free. In fact, she observed what she did in her life that created value for free. And once she got really clear on that, she decided she was going to become, very specifically, a neonatal nurse. That's a nurse in high-risk babies. Her name is Natasha. Now, Natasha, we had to get a tutor to get her through high school algebra and high school math. In, in college, 
she, they have these special sort of sciences, and maybe not here at UCSD, but in other colleges, you can take these sciences that don't have labs, they're really, there's sort of a class about what science maybe is like, but it's not really a science <laughs> class. Well, those are the classes that she took. So she had nothing to start with being a nurse, but she got really clear that this would be the most fulfilling job she could possibly have, specifically that job. So she went to uh, junior college and started with the three science classes, you know, chemistry, anatomy, physiology, all had labs. She'd take three classes a semester with three labs and worked part-time, 20 hours a week. Now, her brain was totally unused to this foreign language. It was like an assault. Like, what are you talking about? And quit with those big words. Let's talk about Da Vinci, Raffaello, not this stuff. And what she did is she got the books and she had every color pen in the world and she marked them up and then she would translate the most important things that she needed to remember to four by eight cards and she would write on the four by eight cards. She would, she would mark those up because she was just trying to create a facility in her brain to remember this stuff. Everywhere we went, we'd be going out to dinner. She'd be in it with her cards, looking. Every spare moment, she had her cards. It was crazy. It took her three semesters to get all the science that she needed. She already had a bachelor's, so she got into a BSN nursing program. She actually didn't get into it. She got on the waiting list. There were only four spots on the waiting list, and she was number 10 and through some crazy thing, others decided not to go, so she got in. Last one in, the program. And she was the second one hired at Mary Birch over here, one of the greatest high-risk uh, baby NICU units, uh, certainly in, the, in our region. Now, I just want to tell you, if somebody as mentally handicapped <laughs> as my daughter was in science can be trusted with really premature, really sick babies. Be, be, in fact, the second one hired out of her class. You can do anything, because I've seen it with my own eyes. But she got really clear on what she wanted. She had a strategy to do it, and she put amazing energy into it. Creative persistence. So when I say that our, our capacity is untapped, and what's What's in the way of tapping our capacity is something in, uh, in the corporate world we call disengagement. Disengagement simply means we're just going through the motions. We're not trying. We're not really giving our energy to anything. And so many of, many of you have jobs or work or have been in jobs where disengagement is, is sort of the norm. And the reason is that right now our economy has become world-class at creating jobs we don't like. And these four characteristics are jobs we don't like. And high demands, low pay, limited decision-making, little security. And there's a reason for this. Because business schools teach people, teach future business leaders, that the greatest cost of doing business is payroll. And so what you want to do is minimize the risk of not having interchangeable parts of your payroll so you can get rid of them and hire new ones. And, you know, it's just you, you treat people like objects that you can just replace. So over at the business school, that's what they're teaching people. They may not say it in exactly the way I say it, but that's what they're teaching because I lecture in business schools and I know what they teach. 
And so they've created jobs that nobody wants. And the reason we know this is because we, just a recent poll showed that 81% of Americans right now would change jobs if they could because they don't like where they work. And the primary reason they don't like where they work is high demands with low pay, low power, and low security. So the world isn't created to make you happy. I know you didn't know that. <laughs> but I'm here to just to let you in on that secret. So where are you today would be a question. Well, lots of people are in a career, even if they have a career. A lot of people don't have careers. They just have jobs. And job is not a career. So the latest research says that most people have about 16 different jobs during their lifetime. Many will have more. So your job is not your career. You have to think about your career and how you're going to string all these multiple jobs together. So you may have gotten a job out of college that was just a job that was available. You may have uh, decided that while you were in college that you really wanted to have a job with good security and good status. That's the way a lot of people enter the professions of, of law, for instance, accounting and so forth. You, you know, the problem is you're 20 years old and you're trying to make a decision for a 40-year-old, the person you're going to become 20 years from now. It's really hard for 20 because our brains aren't even developed at 20. You know, college students are, are characterized by low impulse control. What the brain of a college student is, is to get the greatest amount of stimulation and pleasure for the least amount of effort. <laughs> and so that sounds like motorcycles and rock and roll and the rest of it, okay? But nevertheless, we make these decisions. So we know the most unhappy professionals, and no offense to anybody in this room, are lawyers. We know this because there's been many, many polls of lawyers at age 40, 40 52% say they wish they would have chosen something else. Now, that doesn't mean there are all lawyers unhappy. I know lawyers that are thrilled with the law. They probably even sing to work. I don't know exactly what songs they're singing, but they probably do. I'm just suggesting that when you make a big investment based on a career that is primarily based on status and money, it's really questionable whether that's going to be the thing that really starts your engine every morning. Uh, another thing that might be happening is you're pursuing somebody else's career because mom and dad or a coach or a teacher said, you'd be awesome at this. I'll give you an example. When I was uh, in college, some really well-meaning counselor said I ought to be a minister. And the reason that they thought I ought to be a minister is because I have deep convictions and I talk like this. So he said, your evangelical style would make you a great minister. I'd be so unhappy as a minister. Because I don't like large organizations telling me what to think and do. But I am an evangelist. But there's a lot of ways to take something you really love doing, which is doing what I'm doing right now, in any kind of different field. Here's another example. I have a good friend who... Um, is an accountant, has a degree in accounting, and she works in the movie industry keeping track of, um, of all the, the set pieces and wardrobe and all those, those things that you use. And she would, uh, kept track of all of that for the movie Mamma Mia. She actually had to be in Greece with Pierce Brosman and Meryl <laughs> Streep and all those. That's what she had to do. So you see, here's a person who's really good at accounting but didn't want to be an accountant. 
Often, you may have a skill, you know, your, your whole, your best career is the one you stand out in, not fit in. So when somebody says, gee, you ought to be an accountant, therefore you ought to go to work for a big firm and, and crunch numbers every day, may not be true. Maybe you'd be great to be an accountant, but how would you like to keep track of all the things they use in movies that they don't want to lose because they're so expensive? So it's a way of thinking about something that you're good at that may be different than when somebody told you what to do. The last one is you thought your passion was enough. So, you know, you always hear, do what you love, and then the lie comes, and the money will follow. <laughs> and on television or on, you know, documentaries, they always, uh, they have entrepreneurs on who just said, gosh, I was so, you know, passionate about making spongy wrist things for kids, and, you know, I made $100 million because that's what I was passionate about. What they never have, what they never have are stories of people who are really passionate about somebody who wanted to make cheesecake-flavored snow cones the next big thing. And they mortgaged their house, they borrowed money from their family, and they totally went bankrupt. Now, it's great to be in love with your work. We should really like our work. If we're going to do good work, we have to really like it. But one of the things I warn people about is don't be excited necessarily about turning your hobby into a business. Now, I grew up on a cattle ranch. I grew up in the 1950s. There were westerns on TV every night. We played cowboys, and we can't say what we used to play then. But anyway, in the 1950s, that was the world, the world of the western. I grew up on a cattle ranch, so I learned to ride when I was four years old. My brother and I used to ride out on the ranch on Saturdays. We'd pack a lunch in saddlebags. I get to dress like that all the time, and I wasn't considered odd. And I loved writing. Then about 12 years old, my father recruited me to be a cowboy on the ranch. And every summer, we'd have to move cattle uh, from the back of the ranch uh, to where the trucks were to take them to the feedlot. We'd have to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning. And because I was a really young guy and I wasn't really skilled, my job was to ride in front of the cattle. Now, you know, in, in westerns, they always show them driving cattle and the cattle running, and we'd never do that in real life because the cattle would run off all their meat. So you want the fattest cattle possible when you get to the, to the scales, so you drive cattle very, very painfully slowly. <laughs> so try riding a horse as slow as you possibly can. Yeah, it's five in the morning, and then it gets really hot, and then really dusty. And when you get off your horse, you know, six, seven hours later, you're just feeling like this the whole time. It didn't take me long to say, boy, I love horseback riding, I love pretending to be a cowboy, but I hate being a cowboy. And uh, I had a little accident, it wasn't major, but I had a little accident when I was 14, and uh, fortunately we lived near the beach, and I was just starting to surf, and my father's a really compassionate Italian man, he said, he said, son, what would you rather be, a cowboy or a surfer? <laughs> Dad, there's no contest. <laughs> So he let me be a surfer. And I never went back to being a cowboy, even though I loved it. But as soon as it turned into work, I didn't love it so much. And this is the point I want to make. I know several professional surfers who quit being professional surfers because as soon as they got paid to do it, it ruined it because there were people taking video and they had sponsors telling them, you need to do this and you need to do that and so on and so forth. 
I have another daughter who was a great painter, a portrait painter, and she learned in the classic Renaissance way where you do a green underpainting. Her paintings are beautiful. They're so realistic, and they're so in that classic style. Anybody would love a portrait. And as long as she can do it for free, she does these beautiful portraits. She tried to make a living at it, and the pressure of her being paid for it ruined it. She couldn't do it. She just kept thinking, what is the person going to think? Are they going to really like it? Well, they tell me they like it, but they don't really like it. You know how artists are, right? So she couldn't do it for money. She still does it, but she does it for friends and family and others as an act of love because taking her hobby and getting paid for it ruined the joy of it. So I, I'm just, I'm not saying you shouldn't make your hobby ever into your work or your career. I'm saying just be aware that love is not enough. Loving it is not enough. And second, sometimes being paid for something you love makes you not love it as much. So just be thoughtful of that. Should you like your work? Yes. Should you love aspects of it? Absolutely. So we're going to spend the rest of the time talking about the three most important things you want to learn about your career. Now, number one is this. And now there's plenty of research at what causes people to love what they do. And there are these five things. And it starts off with, does my work reflect my values and my purpose? In other words, can I express my values through my work? Or do I work in a place where what they value and I value are really far apart. Like, for instance, do I work for a cigarette company? I don't know how you get anybody to work for a cigarette company, but that's a question. Do you work for somebody who just blatantly pollutes? And if that's a big value for you, how does that make you feel? Is what that organization is doing really creating value for people? Values that align with your values. And we all have different values. But what we find is people who feel, gosh, I'm proud of where I work because what we do creates value in a, in a way that I respect, that I relate to. And our work is purposeful. We try to make it great. We try to make it better. We try to be better at something than other people. Those things really matter to people. Second, does this job give me a chance to grow? And I mean personally grow. Can I get better at the things that I really matter, really matters to me at getting better? So am I growing in my skill? Am I growing in my profession? Am I growing as a manager, a leader, or as an independent contributor? Am I learning things that interest me, that I like to learn? The next thing is, does my job or my career allow me to make an impact? Now, the most frustrating thing, because I work in a lot of organizations trying to revive morale, and, and the biggest frustrating thing is the bureaucracy in organizations. So lots of people have good ideas, but then they, they try to promote them, and then they're just... Ah, they're just weighed down. They're tabled. Oh, you got, you know, uh, appeal after appeal, and and uh, we don't have the resources for it. And yeah, it's a good idea, but whatever. Or in a lot of organizations, so many organizations deal with legacy IT systems, so it's just hard to get anything through the system because the uh, the computers just don't talk to each other. We can't accommodate that. We just have to do it the old way. So many businesses end up being all about how do you minimize risk, rather how do you drive opportunity. And so what happens is people like, they feel like they don't make much of an impact. It's called having a low return on effort. So do you work in a career, a profession, or in a place where there's a high return on effort? Like if you have a good idea, wow, there's a chance it'll be implemented. Because if you work in an environment like that, you'll always be excited to grow. But if you don't, what'll happen is you'll just get a paycheck. Self-expression. So does the organization really allow you and encourage you to be you? Do you get to say what you really want to say? Do they value authentic communication? 
Do they value transparency? Are they interested in why you think what you think, not just what you think or don't think? Anytime you you have a sense of self-expression, it's a feeling of what Maslow said was self-actualization. Boy, part of me is being manifest through the work I do. Awesome. And then finally, is it financially fair? We can be satisfied with fairness. We don't have to have abundance to be happy. But what we don't like is nepotism, favoritism, people reneging on their offer to give us a bonus. Oh, we had this little problem, and now you're not going to get the bonus, but of course all the senior people will. So that's what we rebel against. The other question is benefits. You know, there's a, a level of human dignity. Some organizations are very generous with benefits. I'm fortunate to work with a number of those. And when people get good benefits, generous benefits, what it makes them feel is respected. But when they're nickel and dime to death, it's like, gosh, are you kidding me? I am worth so little to you. You want me to do what? You want me to pay for what? I've seen a lot of nodding heads. So you see those five things. Now, you don't have to have all five at a ten, but you could take your own job or own career or your own history and mark down on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being this is great, where those, each one of those things are for you. And if there's something that's really six or below, that is driving you crazy. That's the yes, but. Now, there are people who get all five. So just remember that. Remember, you have an unlimited capacity. Life is not perfect. There's no perfect place that always stays perfect. But these things should always be in play. Second, There's an enormous difference between good and great. And we know this from lots of research. I work with lots of um, researchers. Uh, One of them is a company called Zenger Folkman, who's done lots of research on the difference between being good and great. And what happens, for instance, in business, is that we know good general managers, the mean, produce about half as much as great general managers. This is a a study done where um, there are independent profit centers all across the country, about 450, just one study, but they've repeated it over and over again, where the top 10% of general managers of those profit centers created twice as much, nearly twice as much profit as the mean. That's good. And obviously, that's actually considered an infinite amount more than the bottom 10%. So... And this is all factored in for uh, equalizing all the factors that would would make this a fair comparison. Now, they've done this time and time again. Now, any of you who have worked in an organization where you have many people, you can take salespeople doing the exact same thing. If you look at the top 10%, the mean, and the bottom, you'll find the people in the top 10% are typically outproducing everybody else, typically by at least two times, sometimes much more than that. Now, Let's look what this means professionally. The world is looking more and more like how movie actors get paid. As far as we know, there's about 5,000 movie actors who get paid enough money full-time to live without being a waiter or waitress. Now, when we we think of movie stars, we think of Tom Hanks, Tom Cruise, Meryl Streep. And those people get paid between 20. If you're Tom Cruise and you own a piece of the movies you make, you can get paid $100 million for a single movie. 
But if we were going to, we could actually in this room name every high-paid actor in the world. You know why? It's not that very many. Less than 100. Probably closer to 50 in the whole world. Now we think, oh, acting, boy, so I just get my break. Well, there's a huge difference between being great and even good because we all see character actors or people that were in TV shows or in a movie. Wow, that's good. You know, they're good. I mean, you don't typically see somebody really awful at acting. Not anymore. Well, they're, they're not making $10 million a movie. So, let's take CPAs. For years, I, I uh, did executive coaching for KPMG, one of the largest um, accounting firms in the world. And their top partners made millions a year. Now you can be a CPA in a firm here, and you might make 250000 a year. Or you could be a practitioner. You could have the same education. You could actually have gone to the same school and make 80000 a year. Do you see what I mean? There's a huge difference between being great and good financially, and typically there's a quite a big difference, a huge difference, between great and good in terms of the value you produce. And too often we compare ourselves to each other, which is like the mean, we don't aspire to be good. Now, if you're an athlete, what you, if you're a basketball player, you want to be Michael Jordan. You don't aspire to be somebody we've never heard of, right? So if we thought like athletes and said, how could I be great at my career? Well, you're going to have to choose something that you like enough, maybe even love enough, that you're willing to naturally invest. You're willing to be motivated to do it. And the thing that is coming down in this new world is that we need to combine a lot of things. And the rarest thing of all in creating value is something called wisdom. And wisdom is the intersection of knowledge, judgment, and values. And why wisdom is so important is wisdom is the fountainhead of decision-making. And we know that success in anything is deciding on what you're really going to overinvest in and what you're not going to do at all. Apple made this very, very popular now in in the business world, but it's true in everything in life. If you're going to be great at something, you're going to have to say no to a bunch of things that you might be good at, that you might even enjoy. But if you're going to be great at something, it's going to take an overinvestment, a big investment. A lot of people don't know this, but when the iPod uh, first came out, As soon as it started selling, Steve Jobs committed $190 million to advertise it in the first 12 months. Now, there were other MP3 players. And the advertising budget, the highest advertising budget that we can figure out of a competing MP3 player was $5 million. So what's the difference between $190 million and five? World domination. (laughs) Do you see the differentiated investment? Do you see the courage? You go back to my daughter, Natasha... How much did she have to invest in being a nurse? It couldn't like, well, I'll dabble, I'll take a few classes, but you know, really what I want to do is go clubbing. <laughs> she had like no social life for three years. <laughs> well, she rebuilt her brain. Now she has a great social life. She's 27 years old and has the whole future in front of her. She has a great income, loves what she does. But it took a big differentiated investment to make that happen. So what I want you to be thinking about is what I call good future, bad future. Bad future is the future that is the default future. 
I'm not really saying it's bad. I'm just saying if you don't do anything, what's likely to happen? And then the question you have to ask yourself, is that okay? If it's okay, then great. Awesome. Go for it. Really, seriously. Because it's only if, if your default future is not the future you want, you need to think about it. You know, one of the greatest motivations that we can have is, is to wonder what your life would be like if you don't have the things that you really value. Because you'll double down on your investment in what you value. But if you never think, if you take it all for granted, then those things will slip away. So that's why I do this exercise called Good Future, Bad Future and say, hey, if nothing happens, what's likely to happen? If nothing changes, what's likely to happen? Is that okay? No. All right? So what's your best future? If you were to create your best future, what would happen? And I ask people to write that down because you're trying to reprain your neurosynapses to think that way. And so there's a question that you have to come up with. If nothing changes, is that okay? Because if it's okay, you'll never invest the energy to change. When I began the the program, I, I said, do you have a vision of your future? Do you have a vision of yourself? And if you don't, are you willing to create it? And, and the best way to create this is over time. The best way to create it is in writing because writing changes the brain faster than typing. Neurologically, typing does very little to change the, our brain habits. Writing does a lot more, a lot faster. And if you do this process of creating a self-vision iteratively... And that means asking yourself, gosh, if I could imagine myself three years from now, I would be doing this. My life would feel like this. My relationships with my friends and loved ones would look like that. Whatever's important to you. And you think about it. You just think about it when you go to bed at night and then right when you wake up in the morning. Gosh, then you've just turned on all that excess power of your subconscious brain, all that computing power to work on it over the night and work on it. And if you do it iteratively, in other words, if you create a vision a life vision today, and think about it again tonight, then rewrite it the next day without looking at the other one. You're not trying to refine. This isn't like editing. Then you let that sit. You do this for seven days. At the end of seven days, your life vision will be pretty clear about what's most important to you, what you really like, what you really love, how you really want to be. And that's a gift you can give yourself because once you give yourself that gift, As I said earlier, you'll be much more likely to produce that vision because you're going to make all these choices, even subconsciously, to do things and to talk to people in ways you may never have talked to them before, you've never even thought before, because you're going in a direction that you really care about. Now, what's the source of our superpower? How could I be like Thor? Well, for me, it's out of the question to be like Thor. He's just so handsome. But anyway, let's look at this intersection. The first is what I call your design. We'll spend a minute on that. The second is your desires. This is really about your self-vision. And the third is how do you create value for others? Because this isn't all about you. This is all about what you're going to do that's going to make the world better for you having been part of it. So I want you to think about this in terms of economic value. The only reason to hire anybody in a business or the only reason to be in a business if you're an entrepreneur is to either make money or save money. I don't think you've ever heard that anywhere before, but every job and every business originally 
was designed to either make money or save money. By make money means you're going to develop the business, sell more stuff, develop new products, uh, marketing, sales, product development. All of that is all about making money. Then there's another side of the business, like keeping track of the money, all the finance, all the process people. How are we going to do this? How are we going to take all the waste out of the business? If you're in HR, what you're doing is you're helping people either make money or save money by finding out what they're best at. Now, if you just take what you do and you just can put it in those categories, what you'll find is, gosh, I love the making money part of a business or a career a lot more than the saving money part of a business or career. Now, if you're in a nonprofit or in an educational institution, instead of saying making money, it's what do I do to attract donors or what do I do to attract students or what do I do to attract or create value that will attract students and donors and so on and so forth. So it doesn't necessarily have to be money, but you see what I mean? It's either to drive growth or to save assets. Now, what the world wants today are extreme experts. The world doesn't need generic workers. They've created all these jobs for generic workers so that you're not needed. So the only economic security you have isn't your paycheck. Think of it this way. Everybody today is in a business of one. It's called Me, Inc. And when I hear people talking about the economy, it's hard to get a job. I say, the only economy you have to worry is about your economy. I know people who've had great jobs all the way through this recession. And typically they have great jobs because they're really great. They're indispensable at something. I know people who started business in the middle of this recession, done extremely well, made millions because they're really great at something. A generic worker is the mean. So if you're going to be great at something, you have to become an extreme expert. And so think of T-shaped knowledge. T-shaped knowledge means I'm going to know a lot about everything. So in some ways, I'm going to keep up on everything that's happening in the wider culture. That's like I'm a walking USA Today. The reason I need to know everything that's going on is because everything connects to everything more today than ever. Then right in the middle of the continuum is I need to know something really deep, usually in an industry or in an area. I need to know a lot about it. I need to be in the top ten of knowing about that. And I need to have real knowledge, not fake knowledge. Like, there's a whole new career called social media. Familiar with that? And so everybody today is a social media expert because there's no standard. Anybody who can, you know, make a Facebook entry says they're a social media expert. There's no standards in that. But there's a few people who are really great at it, and they get paid tons of money. Most people don't, because most people don't really produce results. It's a thing. There are words that people say, but nobody can produce predictable results. There's a few people who are great. What does it take to get great? Knowing everything that's going on in very deep, And by the way, if you can be deep in two areas, that will make you really amazing. So, for instance, there are actually engineers who are also psychologists. So they created a whole thing about human factors engineering. That is, how can we make stuff that people actually use and enjoy using? And how do we do that without guessing? How can we do that by knowing? So that's where you take two parallel pieces of knowledge, bring them together, and to create something really unique where you can become maybe even the best in the world at something. And often the more distant apart they are, the greater value you can create. So let's suppose you're working full-time and say, gosh, what am I going to be great at? Well, you've got to really like it, hopefully love it, 
You, you, you want to be able to, you'd, you'd like this so much, you'd study on it on Saturday at night, weekends. But here's, I want to tell you the Jerry Seinfeld way of becoming great. You know, if you're a, uh, and, and I don't know Jerry. I feel like I do because he's in my living room so often with his friends. <laughs> but um, as a stand-up comedian, typically if you go out and do stand-up, it takes about 90 minutes. And to do a really good show, you have to have at least 60 good jokes. Not like 40 good jokes and 20 kind of good jokes. You have to have 60 really <clears throat> jokes. Because if you pay to go see a comedian, you want to laugh at every single thing they say. That's what they hate. No duds. Well, do you know how hard it is to write good comedy? It is. It is like the hardest. Most people say it is the hardest thing in the world. Absolutely the hardest thing in the world. So he got writer's block. I mean, you can sit down and say, I'm going to write 20 jokes today. So he, he decided, he really thought about it and looked at what he was doing, and he said, you know, it takes uh, about 20 minutes to write a really good joke because you have to write it and rewrite it and so on and so forth. It takes about 20 minutes. And I can write one good joke a day. That I can do. Hey, in a month, even if I only do it on weekdays, I'll have 22 good jokes. That means I can recycle jokes about, I can get a whole new act every 90 days. Well, that's pretty crazy, right? 20 minutes a day? So the way I want you to think about becoming great is not the way my daughter Natasha did it with cards. What I want you to think about is simply this. If you devote 30 minutes a day to learning something in a field you want to be great at, and you can do that. You can go on uh, TED and watch an 18-minute talk. I mean, we live in this amazing world with all this information. We don't have to go anywhere. But we could go to a conference every quarter for a year. We could be reading books. We don't have to read the whole book, by the way. We just, read, uh, just devour books. When I read books, I underline, I rip out pages, I copy stuff. I just, I, it's like I eat the book. And I never read a whole book because I don't have time, but I have to read a lot to stay up on things. But I don't have a lot of time, but I do have a half hour a day. And what happens if you do a half hour a day of really being devoted to becoming an extreme expert, you'll be amazed at what you know in six months. In six months. You'll know almost much more than all your colleagues. Period. About 30 minutes a day. So, how do we know what we're really good at? We'll spend a few minutes on that. So here's another exercise. Very simple. This is called the flourish exercise. This is what I'd ask you to do. And you can do it as long as you want, but I'd suggest for the next three weeks, every night, you have to get a, something to write on, just like you've got there. At the end of the day, just ask, what did I do well today that I really enjoyed? What did I do well today that I really enjoyed and then answer the question, why? So it could be that you really prepared, that you were fully present, that you really knew your stuff. Whatever it is. I don't know what it is. But when you start to see, what you'll see is you always succeed by doing the same thing. Like I always succeed when I'm prepared. Or I know people who always succeed when they're not prepared. In other words, they love the energy of spontaneity. They love being sort of not quite all prepared because they don't want to come off as canned. I actually know people who get off on the thrill of not being totally prepared. So you need to find out, who are you? What is going on when things go well that you enjoy? And again, if you do this for three weeks, you'll see a pattern, and the pattern's fairly narrow. It's not like 20 things. It's like three or four things. 
These three or four things are always present when I do something really well that I enjoy. And it's already there. You already do it. You're designed, that's my whole point, is you're designed to succeed at something that you already like. So, the next question is, what difference do you want to make? In other words, we know that people who find their work meaningful in the sense that it contributes to others have deeper life satisfaction. And it's not always about finding a cure for polio. We can create deep life satisfaction. Well, let me, let me say this. I do a lot of work with a Gap company, you know, the one that has stores all over the place. And you think, gosh, retail, that's like the worst, you know, how, how could you find that meaningful? And what we find is that with the top store managers, the meaning they have in life is that every year there's, there's about a 50% turnover in store personnel. And every Christmas time, they get all these temporary workers. And the most outstanding managers love the job because they get to teach all these new people how to really excel in the workplace, how to talk to people, how to serve people, how to keep responsible. And they, they take personal joy and personal connection with their employees because they say, this isn't your last job. This is your, like one of your first jobs. So they're up to something totally different than selling clothes. To be successful, they have to sell clothes. But why they get up in the morning is to make a difference to the people that work for them. Is that crazy? Now, by the way, the company doesn't really teach this. It's not like, this is what you really need to do. I'm saying it just emerged out of the values of the individuals. So get really thoughtful about the difference that you really want to make. I say everybody's got a promise. I coached one uh, former telecom executive who um, at, at 50 decided that uh, she no longer was going to work and was going to participate in her teenager's growth and so on and so forth. And after a while, she got very discouraged, feeling pretty worthless, like, gosh, I just... Nobody depends on me anymore in that way, and I really like my job, and so on and so forth. And we started to do this thing about what do you find most meaningful? What brings the most joy to your soul? And what we got is this pattern of when people were really discouraged, they always went to her because she is just absolutely positive, always sees opportunity, just and, and concrete, not just bubbly, and eh, it'll be okay, just you can do this, and you can, I've seen you do that before, and all that. And I found out that in her family... She'd have nephews and nieces that when they were, you know, on the outs with their parents, they would always call her Aunt Debbie. And Aunt would say, hey, you're great. You're going to be okay, but you've got to go to college. You're better than your grades. Come on now. I'm depend- I know how smart you are. Th- these were the dialogues that she would have. So whether it was colleagues or coworkers or friends, and I said, well, you promised the world is to encourage the discouraged. Everything else is, is just a platform for you to do that. So if you can discover what it is that you naturally do, naturally do that brings you meaning and you bring that to your work, you'll be far more committed to your work. Whether you're at Gap or whether you're a mom or a dad or at home, whatever it is, there's some promise that burns inside you that's unique to you. It's part of your brand. Now, here's a way to look at your design. You'll notice... This has motivation at the bottom and expertise on the side. And you'll notice that you can be expert at something that you're not motivated about. 
And if you do that, I mean, because most of you are multi-talented in this room. I always deal with high achievers, high performers. They say, gee, I can't decide what to do because I, I kind of do lots of things well. Great. But there's lots of things you do well that you don't love. We just don't love that many things. But if what we're doing really well is not really intrinsically motivated, what we find is job stress. This goes back to the lawyers I was talking about. I'm a good lawyer. I just don't like it. So I feel a lot of job stress. Now, if you're really motivated to do something that you're not really good at, you're like most of the people on American Idol. <laughs> right? Because we're all motivated to do stuff that we're not very good at. Excuse me. You know, I love to surf. No one ever pay me to surf, believe me. I love it. It's a great hobby. But I couldn't turn that into my profession. So what you're looking for is that intersection of what naturally motivates you. What, in a sense, would you do for free because you really like doing it? You like what it does to your mind. You feel growth. You feel uh, meaning and all that. That you're naturally talented at. In other words, you're getting a big return on effort because you get it. It makes sense to you. Now, remember what I said? These are traits. Traits are the way that we look at the world. It's the way that it's, it's the deepest part of our personality. We're all different. And these traits are the way that we see opportunity. And so Martha Stewart, the way she's opportunity is to bring order to the world. There are rules, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, rules. And I'm the one who are going to tell you what the rules are. But she's not the only one that wants to find the established way and teach it. There are plenty in this room who like that. It's sort of an engineering mentality. Then you have Steve Jobs. I just want to create cool stuff so that people can do cool things. You'll notice that Steve Jobs didn't say, I want to change the world. What he said is, I wanted to create cool electronic stuff so that people can change the world. I don't want to become a singer and entertainer. I want to create a platform where people who sing can reach everybody in the world. So that's a creative way, a creative orientation. Then you have Howard Schultz, and if you know anything about Howard Schultz, what he really cares about, believe it or not, are repeat customers every day, and not just for the money, although, of course, he cares about that, but he really cares about creating a community around Starbucks. And he has high empathy. He's driven primarily by empathy. So he's got a job. He's always doing something. So he's got a big job. You can spend $5 at Starbucks to get a wristband to try to create money to give to an entrepreneur in microloans. He leads with empathy. And then you have Richard Branson, who's just a teenager. <laughs> he's staying a teenager. He has 300 businesses. And, and contrary to Jack Welch, they're not number one or number two in any industry. You know, the reason that he, he calls his company Virgin is somebody told him when he was going in the record business, you know, you, don't, you won't succeed, you're a virgin. And he thought about, gosh, a virgin is somebody who doesn't know what the heck's going on. That's what I am. And I'm going to go into industries where I have no idea what the uh, right way to do things are. And I'm just going to make it up. That's been his business model. Can you believe how crazy that is? If he was in business school today, everybody would say, Richard, that won't work. I know, but it just created a $19 billion business. It's stupid. 300, you know, we sell phones, we fly airplanes. It doesn't make any sense. I just love it. So, all really successful. 
But see, the, the lens that they look through are all different. So ask yourself, if you're not clear, which one of these people do you relate to? Not as their personalities, but their way of looking at the world because they're the four dominant, most prominent ways of looking at the world. Now, if you're really going to desire, what do you desire? Remember I said it's the intersection of design and desire? So what do you desire? Well, if you only work on enjoyment, like say, gosh, I really want to have fun. I really like going out at night, so I'm going to own a bar. Well, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with owning a bar. But if the only reason you're going into that is your fun, is it's fun, it's going to be hard to feel meaning about that for a long time. But if you do something just for meaning, so you sort of, I, I do this because I really need to. I see a lot of people in the nonprofit world, well, somebody has to do it. You know, so they go into it because of guilt. I mean, I don't really enjoy it. I hate asking people for money. It's really hard to run these programs. I can't retain any people. They're not having any fun. So you've got to find something that's meaningful that you enjoy intrinsically. And like I said, if you can be a retail, run a retail store for a big corporation and really enjoy it and be motivated and wild, excited to get up in the morning because the people you're going to teach help empower, you can do this with anything. You just need to find out what it is for you that is in that intersection. And one of the ways you find it is to make a little chart of your life. And what this chart is is simply a milestone. Just think of the times in your life when you were really, really successful, really, really happy. Those are the high points because that's where your superpowers manifest. That's when your design and your desire and the way you create value for others all came together. And then if you look at the low points in your life, what you'll see is how you violated your superpower, how you didn't use your superpower. It's sort of like Thor gardening. Thor is a warrior. He's not designed to be a gardener. I mean, using that hammer just isn't working on plants. Well, all of us have those moments in our life where we crashed, we failed, we didn't do a very good job. And it's just as instructive to see what was going on when we weren't successful because we'll see a pattern as when we were. The all things you, you're now fully licensed. You can do this at home. And then I, I just want to make a comment about this. We don't live in compartments, especially today with all the electronic connections that we have. Where we're, we're kind of there's what I call new work. New work means that we're always working. You know, we're connected on the weekends. We're working. We're talking to people and so on and so forth. But if the only thing we do with work, there isn't any work that will be meaningful enough to sustain that because we aren't just working beings. We're beings that want relationships that really work. And we also need to play. We know psychologically. We know for brain health we need to play. And Eric Erickson, the famous psychologist from Harvard, said, we need to work, love, and play every day to be healthy. So the question is, how can I create my career that supports important relationships in my life, and that allows me to play some every day. Now, what I want to offer all to you is I was interviewed, it's a fairly long interview, then we, I mean, it's a multi-hour interview, on this topic. You know, so many people have been looking for work, and many people have been, you know, sent out, I always hear these stories, I sent out a thousand resumes, and didn't get anything. Well, sending out resumes isn't looking for work. It, it's something that looks... It looks like it's looking for work, but it isn't. 
because it doesn't really produce anything. So what I tell people is, once you know how you want to add value, once you know what you want your career to be about, just start doing it. You don't need any other permission. I give you full permission today. Just start doing it. And what I mean, remember I said that all of us are in business for ourselves. Whether we get a paycheck signed by a company or not, that's only temporary. But you are me incorporated. So I tell people the best way to look for work is to become a consultant, adding value the way you add value. And as a consultant, what you do is you either help people make money or grow their business or save money. Those are the two choices. And you have to get very good at telling people what you do. And you start off by taking whatever you can because you're going to school on your customers. Now, I don't mean you stop looking for work and that you permanently become a free agent. Some people would never want to do that. Some people do. Once they start doing it, they say, gosh, I like this lifestyle. It's great. Others don't. They want the job. But what I'm saying is the most productive way to start looking for a job in your chosen field or career is to start doing that job. And I have story after story, if we had the time, of people who started doing it for free. Like people say, hey, you know, but I don't. Great, I'll do it for 30 days. At the end of 30 days, I'm lousy, kick me out, and you never saw me again. But if I can prove to you I can add value in 30 days, let me do it. Young man I know, really wanted to get in the video game business. He was a philosophy major. Yeah. He had one class in computer programming. He went to a small video game company and he said, what's your toughest problem? Because he was a math genius. He'd won all these math awards in high school. And he said, if I can solve that toughest problem, you give me a job. And they said, well, you don't have a degree in computer. I said, forget it. I'm just asking, if I can solve your toughest problem right now, which is all about how to make figures don't, uh, look more smoothly, if I can solve that problem, will you hire me? He said, absolutely, I will hire you. So they, put him, they gave him a little desk in a hall. They gave him the problem. The problem was like a mind bender. He went on the internet. He started talking to an astrophysicist over the internet in England about compressing code, a way of compressing code. By the way, what I'm talking about, I have no knowledge of, so <laughs> it's not making sense. But code compression, I know, was really important in video games. He solved the problem in three days. He's now a senior programmer of artificial intelligence for one of the greatest game companies in the world. He has a philosophy major. All right? So stop looking for work. Start working. Now, um, here's, um, here's the, la- the last thing I'm going to um, show you. And if you want this, I'll give you an email address and I'll send it to you so it all looks pretty. And I'll also give you a code to go, this interview with me is really a course. I've turned it to stop working, stop looking for it and start working. And I'll, I'll give you a code and you can access that. You won't be able to access it for about two weeks because it's being edited and so on and so forth. But if you want it, you can have it. Um, basically, it starts like this. This is how you start your career. You start down here at, at the lower left, and you say, what do I do well that I enjoy that I would like to do for money? Basically that. And you've got to come up with your elevator speech. And when you come up with your elevator speech, you've got to tell at least one new person a day what you do. I was working with somebody who said she was a project manager. This was a couple of weeks ago. And I said, gosh, that is really boring. What do you, what do you really like doing? about project. She goes, well, I really like designing a new process. Okay, so you're not a project manager. You're a process designer. And she said, well, people will know that, what that is. I know, so I'll ask a question. What is that? Yeah, and you got them. So you've got to come up with a way of describing what your career is. What's the value you're creating for people? And you've got to tell one new person a day. 
because all the people who don't know you very well that are your access to your jobs. Your friends won't get you jobs. It's called weak ties. The people that you don't know very well, they'll give you access to your job, but they can't give you a job unless they know what you do. So if you can't figure out, if you cannot figure out who to tell, just tell the checker at the grocery store. By the way, I want you to know, I'm a process designer. Tell, because you're going to get in a habit. Because just imagine, in 30 days, you'll 30 people who didn't know now know what you do. In 90 days, what you're trying to do, I know people who tell up to three people a day because they are in a circle where that might be relevant. So you can do three people a day, do three people a day. I'll tell you, your life will change in 90 days. Most people will not do that. They don't put the energy into doing it. So you've got to get that. Second, you've got to be really clear on what your promise is. Now, you're not going to get clear really fast, but remember the promise I talked about the story about I encourage the discouraged? What is the difference you want to make? And this is more for you. What is the difference you want to make? Because that's how you're going to present yourself. Because that is your differentiator. There's a lot of people who are project managers, probably a lot of people who are process designers. But what's the difference you're going to make? How is your approach to it? Just, I'm great with people. I can get people who only think in numbers to work together. I'm awesome. Okay? What's your promise? Then second, on a scale of 1 to 10, how important are these six things? Because you always, I run into people who want to be millionaires and they also want to be bartenders. In other words, they don't have any responsibility. They never take work home with them. Don't work on, except when they're scheduled, but they like to make a million dollars. It's not going to happen. So if it's clear that you don't want a career that's really going to be that engaging, you're really not looking for meaning in work. You have meaning in other ways. There's a lot of jobs for that. We're just showing up is enough, and that's fine. You just need to get really clear on what you want. Then you go up here to the upper right and you say, what are the assets I currently have and what are the assets I really need? Because that's what you're going to invest in is getting the assets that you really need. And then how much time are you going to devote to it? Now, if you just do this using the Jerry Seinfeld method of consistency, in 90 days your life will change. I'm not just saying this. I've just seen this happen time and time and time again. So, those of you who uh, would like to get that as a fancy printout, this is how you can reach me. And I'll also give you, uh, as soon as it's ready, the access to that little interview piece that I talked about, about how to uh, stop looking for work and start working. And I, I just, I just want to end with this. The very first speech I ever gave, I, 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 uh, I hooked up with a college professor named Stephen Covey who was teaching something called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People when he was still a college professor. And um, I, I got him to start a business. And I was the general manager. I became the CEO of the business. It was great. It, it was great. And about three months, four months in, and I had, I, you know, I'd, I'd heard him give it a, I don't know, a zillion times. About three months in, he was double booked. Hardly ever happens. But somebody said, well, can somebody else do it? It was a client called Etna Insurance. You're all familiar with that? And so Stephen looked at me and said, well, Will, do you, do you think you could do it? And I said, I'm 34 years old. Of course I can like I was a grown-up. So I, I got, they had paid for a first-class ticket because back in the 80s, they would pay for first-class tickets. And so I was riding with all these people who are older than me and, and uh, you know, Bill's successful, so I'm, you know, I'm feeling really, I am awesome. This is where I belong in first class. Then I get to the place I'm going and there's a, a guy holding one of those papers with my name on it. Yeah. And I get in a black limousine. Oh, yeah. And, and I go to the, uh, the venue and I look at it, and it's like, you know, it's big. It's 150 executives and so on and so forth. It's going to be the next day. And I'm prepping for it. I'm feeling really confident. I'm just going to rip it. In fact, I'll be better than Stephen. 
I've never really given a, a public talk. <laughs> so about seven minutes in, I got this bead of sweat that started here. And have you ever seen a comedian that's not really funny, and it's just sort of, ooh, that was me. It took two and a half hours to slowly die. I was awful. I get lost, I'd stop, I'd stutter, I'd, I'd just mop in my... Anyway, at the end, I got an applause, you know, and I'd never gotten applause in my life, so, oh, I guess they liked it, you know, there was a few high points. And then I got on a plane, came home, and I'm feeling good, and we get a call the next day, and the person asked to speak to Stephen, who's the person who organized the conference, one of the executives. And he said, you know, I hate to say this, but we really want our money back, because it was awful. <laughs> I'm the only public speaker I've ever met who's actually had a client ask for their money back. <laughs> now, there's two responses to failure. One is to double down because I really wanted to do this. Really wanted to do this. So for 10 years, I figured out a way that I could speak every week for free. It's amazing. There are people who will listen to you if you're willing to do it for free. <laughs> Which is what I'm doing this morning. I haven't ever progressed. <laughs> it took me years and coaching and mentoring to get good enough to be asked to do this. And for sometimes people even pay for it. So what I'm saying is this. No matter what your experience is, if you're willing to be like Nurse Natasha, if you're willing to learn from failure instead of accept failure, and you have something to give that burns right here, then make your difference because we need it. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.